Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the relationship between philosophy and theology. My guest is Pierre Grimes, a man who has spent a long lifetime studying the world's great philosophical and theological traditions. Pierre is author of Philosophical Midwifery, a New Paradigm for Understanding Human Problems, Five Philosophical Dialogues, Unblocking, Removing Blocks to Understanding, Is It All Relative, a play on Plato's Theotetus, as well as an unpublished book, which we'll be focusing on today, A Dialogue Between Jesus and Socrates in Heaven. Pierre is based in California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Pierre. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. My pleasure indeed. We're going to be looking at the relationship between the Hellenistic philosophical tradition and the Hebrew theological tradition. Obviously, they intersect quite a bit. Uh, large portions of the Bible have been written in Greek, for example, but they are distinct traditions, and you really highlight that in your, your manuscript, uh, the dialogue between Jesus and Socrates. And that's the great battle that takes place in history and literature and in our culture. To whom do we owe our religious tradition? Judaism or Hellenism? That's what we're returning to, that ancient debate. In your manuscript, you show Jesus as a philosopher, and uh, at first I, I found that a, a little bit offensive because it reminded me of when George W. Bush was asked who his favorite philosopher was, and he said Jesus. Uh, but when I read through your manuscript, I got the impression that uh, uh, old President Bush was probably right. Jesus could very well be considered a philosopher. Yes, you see, that's the value of the Nakamadi texts and the Gospel of, of uh, James. The Gospel of James is asserting a Hellenistic roots to understand Jesus. Yes, that's precise. All of that came through from the Nakamadi finds. It woke up many a person, yes. There are many other examples from Scripture that, that suggest a, a very interpenetrating, interlocking connection between Hellenism and Semitic or Hebrew theology, actually probably long before Jesus. Well, they had 300 years of occupation, and that was the language, uh, lingua franca, of the intellectual world, Greek. That's a 
that's quite a distance of time. One of the uh, strongest findings that comes through your manuscript, Pierre, is the idea that Jesus was essentially a Gnostic teacher and, and that his teachings, not only Jesus's teachings, but Socrates' teachings as well, became distorted by their followers. Yes, yes. I, the work starts off with the major point, which is Jesus is talking to Socrates and they both agree that perhaps they are the cause of much confusion on earth because neither of them presented anything in writing. None of them left a record of what they personally thought about themselves, about divinity, about the whole spiritual life. None of them, neither of them. So, according to the books, we must then search out all of the interpreters and see if we can find our way through to find some basis for making the experiment of Jesus more real. Yes, that's the task. And the intriguing thing about it is that both men were sacrificed, both of them were in effect executed for their teachings. Both of them are considered the founders of essentially the two major cultural traditions of Western uh, society. Uh, they both uh, seem to have been, at least to some extent, probably more Jesus than Socrates, misinterpreted by their followers. And we certainly have, in the case of Jesus, an entirely separate account of his teachings that has now been uncovered independent of the traditional theological teachings of the Christian churches. Oh, absolutely right. Yes, we are. Re see, we are recovering our history, and that takes care and a good number of scholars are now translating all of this great material that came out of the Nag Hammadi find, and they're presenting us to us, and they're saying, let us re-look at this. And it, it, it's, the church is going to have to get involved in it very shortly, because they know that the translation that they have is questionable. And many of church authorities recognize that. It's not hidden. They know they have a better translation that's not being released. Why? Because the authority said all the rituals that we've done and many of the prayers would have to be rewritten. Yes, that's true. But what does that mean? That means returning back to the roots of, of all of this and recovering, if we can, through the dialogue of Socrates and Jesus, some way of working our way through understanding to reach something worthwhile. And when you link up Christianity with either of these two systems, or when they approach a similarity, but their differences are quite pronounced. 
one of the similarities that you describe in the dialogue between Jesus and Socrates is the idea of divine luminescence, that one can become overwhelmed by a powerful sense. You think of it as light, but it's actually beyond all words. Well, yes, that's one of the real problems you see that is discussed in Socrates and Jesus. But the issue is, in three of the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, each of them has a prominent place for Jesus' mystical experience on the Mount, but it's not in John. He takes it out. He leaves it out. And in the first opening 24 lines of John, he makes the point that we must go to belief, not experience. That one must anchor one's thought in the belief of Jesus, not in that experience, and therefore he excludes it in his gospel. Yes, what is the role of the brilliant light of being? You know, one of the most beautiful experiences that are described is that Homer's Iliad on chapter 18, he has a magnificent description of that brilliant light of being, that Achilles experienced in the battlefields. So yes, returning to that experience, what can you conclude? Well, that was the challenge. Paul said, hey, it's not by works, it's only by faith. Oh, that what happens to experience? Goodbye. Paul wants to say it's only in belief. Well, one of the sources we used in the Socrates and Jesus was uh, Rudolf Bultmann. And Rudolf Bultmann has a description of what Christianity is. And he has 14 points that he builds into it. Now, if anybody were to take that list and walk down the street and ask a Christian whether they would recognize this as Christianity, it's undoubtedly the case that they will all accept it. So what? But if you have this list and then read the Gospel of Mark, you'll find no correspondence between the two. What? There is, no there is no way of verifying what Paul claims is the essential part of Christianity. You are not going to find any of those elements in the Gospel of Mark. Uh-oh. I think someone needs a conclusion that maybe Mark is writing to overcome the influence of Paul. That's right. Paul dies at 56, 57. Mark is writing at about 80 AD. He's reflecting back on the role that Paul is playing, and he's saying, uh-uh. And therefore, Mark ends officially. You know, all the Bibles that one had found prior to 400 AD and Mark at the at the cave. 
right? Where they introduce Jesus' body into the tomb. It doesn't have a line on resurrection. There's no resurrection thesis in the Gospel of Mark that was added 400 years later, or 350. So Mark is doing, see these, each of these Bibles and Bible studies now need a fresh look at the entire thing. And that's what many good theologians are doing. It's waking up our, our culture and questioning seriously the role of the official, or we could call them the, the official dogmatic systems, wherever they are. In your manuscript, you have Socrates raising many questions about the very idea that an entity, even a deity, would die in order to save us from our own sins. Socrates suggests it's not even a good idea to save people from their sins. People need to become aware of, of their sins consciously and, uh, I suppose, atone for them. Oh, that's so right. You know, that's the battle. And see, in the early part, for the first eight or nine chapters in the Gospel of Mark, the role is not belief. It has no role. It's understanding, understanding, understanding. It shifts after, after nine because he's going to follow Elijah's teachings. But, hey, uh, what is a parable? See, Jesus says, hey, you know what? If you don't understand my parables, you're not going to get anywhere in the spiritual life. But there are not many churches that are going to take that seriously and say, folks, unless you understand the over 30 parables in the New Testament, according to Mark, the words of Jesus says, they are the way into the kingdom of God. The only way. Uh, there are not many churches that are demanding that as the primary condition for entering and being a Christian. But what is a parable? See, a parable is, a, is, is a, like a, a Japanese koan, a Zen Buddhist koan. Here is a puzzle. These are the words. Can you examine the words and find your way out? If you can't, you're stuck, and you have to find a way through that parable to its solution so you're free. Uh, uh You're free in a different way. What you needed to see in that parable is essential to your spiritual life. Oh, if that's the case, who's opened up the 30 parables so that we can look at them all one after the other? No one is doing that. But he gives the rules. That's just like, see, Plato goes into an, a, a meeting and he raises his questions. They're both sets of questions. One takes a parabolic form and the other does not. So they're both into what is it that can awaken man? Parables are questions. Parables are questions. 
The quest for understanding is the way to the spiritual life. Strange as it may be, the mind seeks to know the mind. The mind wants to know the mind. That's where we're going. There are many people now who are even taking philosophical and spiritual journeys on retreats, following into Spain, into southern France. They're going over those old areas. My son is going for one of them this coming May. He's going to work his way up through Spain into the obligation, the old Catharist center that the church destroyed in the 12th century. But the thought of the obligations or the Catharist is really similar to the Gospel of James. So we're still talking about what gospel shall be used to guide our spiritual life? Uh-oh, wait a minute. Doesn't that mean we should have some idea of what a spiritual life is so that we can find our way through these? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, who should we get to tell us or to explain or to point out? Jeff, that's the person. Jeffrey. Jeffrey will have it. <laughs> At least he'll have a good number of people on his list, will he not? Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> but you, you show both Jesus and Socrates asking very, very deep questions of each other as, as they sort of struggle to assimilate or at least to understand what their differences are. It, seem, it seems as if, though, they're both united in the sense of, as Jesus puts it, guiding people into the kingdom of God. It's, it's not so different than what the Buddhists or Hindus would say uh, about reaching toward enlightenment. That's right. See? And that's precisely anti-Paul. That's what's on... That's what's on the decision. That's the heavy thing on our scales. How long will we follow a man who's rather questionable? By the way, he, Paul could never be part of the Greek experience of participating in the mysteries of Elis, Elysius, the road to Elysius, because to enter into that myth and to that ritual, which was every four years in Athens. Ah, what was the condition? One needed to first know Greek. Second, you could not be a killer. By the way, Paul killed Christians, stoned them to death. He could not be entered. He would not be admitted into the mysteries of Demeter, which, of course, is the Eleusinian mysteries. He was a killer, stoned Christians to death. He came up with an entirely different teaching. By the way, a good way of looking at this is simply to read the first paragraphs of each of Paul's letters only. 
and sit back and say, what is going on here? Because he says he has the only gospel, that he's an apostle of God, not Jesus. What? Yeah, take a look. So to pull Paul out of Christianity will be to save Christianity and bring it into the age of reason and understanding and enlightenment. Yeah. I had the same idea, Pierre, with regard to Judaism, that all we need to do is get rid of Moses and uh, Judaism could get back to its own authentic original beginnings. Yes. We're together. <laughs> I always suspected that. It may be, though, that both Moses and Paul had a certain insight, and maybe, and it's a very sad insight, I suppose, that the masses of humanity are not ready for the esoteric teachings. They need so a, a dualistic teaching that uh, about right and wrong, good and bad, so that they all fall in line and we can have a stable society. Yes, at a certain price. Each of us is a separate being. And to reclaim our mind is to return to our own integrity, to find in the self our own self and to be proud to function through it and with it. That's true for each of us, therefore each person is sacred. I know in your manuscript you do a very interesting thing with the choruses. You have two, a chorus and, and an anti-chorus, and your chorus sort of expresses these beliefs that you describe as right-wing beliefs, a sort of a conglomeration of uh, cynicism and uh, uh, orthodoxies of various kinds, and uh, the, the sense that th th I think they raise a few good points. One of them is that, you know, the philosophical tradition, the Gnostic tradition, the uh, traditions of self-awareness that uh, Socrates championed with his motto, know thyself, uh, these traditions have had thousands of years to work their way into the human community, and one can look at them now and say they failed. Uh, you, your chorus goes on to say it's just talk, talk, talk. It doesn't really make any difference. Well, you get a, you get a prize for your reading. That's right. That's the whole book. Yes. I cast it as uh, the chorus is because behind it, it takes on the form of a tragedy because there are two people that failed. Two religious people failed to deliver any of their own personal vision to us in their own writing, authentic their own words. They started this, and therefore they're leaving us to discover within ourselves what we're going to be looking for with other with others, including in Jesus and Socrates. That's a great, beautiful challenge. We're living in the most beautiful of all possible ages, I believe. All of this is coming forward for a new look. This is a re the most remarkable age in history. We have ways of communicating now like we're doing.
That's totally unheard of in all of history. We can wake ourselves up. And what if what, if what we are doing contributes to people waking up and looking for themselves into these issues, they'll grow and understand. That's the key. Don't tell them. Bring them in to ask questions and seek answers. That's the Logos, you see. We, we buried the Logos. Now we're reviving it. Logos is that divine principle of intelligibility that marks itself as the essential element of reality. It's intelligible. It's meaningful. It's worth respecting and playing a part in fully. Yes. That's where we're going. By the way, we're even returning to the Eleusinian mysteries. It's called Our Culture's New Experiment with Psychedelic Drugs. That's the Eleusinian mysteries. The difference between them, by the way, between us and them, they had myths, they had teachings that supported the Eleusinian mysteries. We don't. We need to generate our own literature and myths to give it an intellectual substance behind it so it isn't just a trip going on trips, but how to make it meaningful. Oh, boy. That's our task. And we're both doing it. We're involved in this to make intelligible human experience before we end it. Hey, all over the world, time to wake up. This is a great period. This is it. I'm rather happy I was born in this age. (laughs) If I look at the theological tradition versus the philosophical tradition. One of, one of the points one sees in theology is this idea, I guess you could call it blasphemy, the, the notion that there are certain truths that are not to be questioned. And in philosophy, I'm under the impression that that's out of bounds. There cannot be anything uh, for the philosopher that is beyond question. Oh, you're quite right. Right. We love those questions that everybody thinks are outside of the realm. That's where we start. Because man has to come to understand himself before he can now walk out in the world and relate to others. Because he's carrying in his own mind every move he's going to play. The role of the idea of self, the word self in Greek is autos, okay? It has two uses. One is self. The other is used, when it's used, is for honorific purposes. And if something is beautiful, a Greek would say, autos, table. It's a self table. They use the word self as an honorific term that would indicate excellence. So behind them, we have this one issue in education and our life. And that is, whatever you do, how can you do it better? 
You see, all the thoughts that we have that bother us, all the thoughts we have, if we wrote them down and ask ourselves, wait a minute, Uh, what is it about these thoughts that are coming that are puzzling me? They are all incomplete that need to be re-looked at. Each thought is incomplete that's bothering us. Our mind wants us to deal with our thoughts so that we can see them and bring some enlightenment to these thoughts. Wait a minute. Uh Uh-oh. That's what we're going to have to teach in schools. How to come to know your own mind. How to be able to deal with your own thoughts. How to prepare yourself for understanding, dream work, exploring. Then we can walk out and we can be friends with one another. When we're looking for something meaningful. It's very interesting, Pierre, that you emphasize dream work to this extent because Although one finds it in uh, theological traditions and in philosophical traditions, for the most part, it's really minimized in, in both of those. Even in psychotherapy, the analysis of dreams these days is, plays a very small role. I have been involved in dream analysis for a few years. I've never found a dream that was not profound when understood. I've never found a dream that wasn't worth reflecting upon and seeing its implication on your daily life. In every case, if you understand how to understand simply dreams, which is only to not interpret them, but to try to understand them in terms of themselves, then you'll see why Plato in the Republic, he says, by the way, folks, There's one thing, one exercise you must do or you're not going to get anywhere. Dreams. In Book 9 in the Republic, he says, hey, that's the only way you can reach truth about yourself because you're going to be able to see your present, past, and future through your study of dreams. Uh, Let me add one thing. In the classical world, you know, of, of the Platonic, the Hellenic world, The rule was no doctor is going to attend to his patients before he analyzes their dreams. They never entered into medical procedures without trying to understand the person's dreams. The dreams are going to tell you where the problem is. So, yes, I've been in, I love dreams. I had, of course, some of the greatest dreams, and therefore I'm in great depth and in depth, death, DBT, depth <laughs> to the gift of dreams, yes. Well, it's certainly true that the, the most ancient of hospitals, the Asclepions, were actually sleep temples where, where people would come and sleep and have a dream right there in the temple to deal with their physical ailments. It's totally lost in our culture today. One doesn't find it in medicine, one doesn't find it in religion, one doesn't find it in academia uh, anywhere. Except. 
the Nomadic Society Friday nights, <laughs> which yeah. I've been doing for 50 years. Well, it, you know, when, when I pre-recorded this introduction, I didn't mention the Noetic Society that you founded and, and have been active in for so long. And, and of course, it's, it's not the only place. There's the International Association for the Study of Dreams, of uh, which I've been a speaker and a participant from time to time. So there are, yeah, yeah, there's a small group of people who pursue dreams, but uh, and who pursue self-awareness, who pursue esoteric knowledge. But overall, it it doesn't amount to more than two percent of the total population. Hey, that's great. That's great. It's grown to two percent. When I was a kid, <laughs> it was zero. <laughs> no Zen, <laughs> no philosophy, no great works of philosophy available. The, the most central thing is to discover the source of dreams. To discover, if you now study dreams and you say that they're meaningful, now you can ask a new question. Where do they come from? Where does this wisdom come from that's coming to me? Because you never made up your own dream. So after World War II, I came across one book that changed everything for me. A Fear and Freedom by Carlo Levi. What a piece of work. He was uh, in one of those concentration camps in World War II, an Italian Jew. And he wrote this book. And he, shy, he, he used all of the metaphors of primitive society in the present world to express what he saw as Nazism, as a state of mind that these people are involved in collectively. Beautiful piece. Of it. it woke me up. I said, oh, my God. Here's a man who can understand this. I said, wow, I'm going to look for other things like it. So I found Huxley's perennial philosophy. That did it. <laughs> then I went through perennial philosophy, and I went through all of his, his sightings and his books, and I said, I'm going to get all of these books. I'm going to go through every one of these crazy books to find out what's going on. So World War II woke me up. Carlo Levi gave me a direction. Walter Huxley laid it out, and I used that as a map, and that's where I've been. And through it all, it comes together with dream work. Wow. Yes. Because as you unpack dreams, you're opening up your mind to the Logos, a higher way of, of reasoning and understanding. And that higher level is divine seeing. There's something very positive about this kind of seeing that's connected with understanding dreams. It means that you, you are receiving a gift from yourself 
for you to understand so you can see things that you have ignored. Wow, what a gift. I had a friend of mine who, is, who, went, who even studied with Carl Jung, and uh, Carl Jung told him, hey, I can't help you. Go to India. You're a mystic. He said, oh, my God, really? So he went to India, and by the way, he got his enlightenment experience <laughs> and came back. <laughs> so uh, this is a great age, 2% already? Wow, that's really, I'm very pleased to hear that. Well, you are an optimist, Pierre. No, 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 I'm accurate. If after thousands of years of esoteric and spiritual and philosophical teachings on this planet, we've been able to reach 2% of the population and humanity stands at the very precipice of its own self-destruction, uh, another thinker might say that those are grounds for pessimism. Now, I would say that now we have 2% available to be teachers. Hey, it's time for the priest or the enlightened ones to start talking about how to save ourselves from our own destructive ignorance. Hey, with 2%, that's all we need. Let's face it, let's talk about it, let's get it open. Hey, what a great opportunity, 2%. Because all you need is that one principle. Whatever you're doing, hey, could you do it better? Why not? Do it. Go back and do it. Make everything you're doing better. That's all. When Plato did his Parmenides, which is the, one of the considered one of the more profound works in existence, and he describes the highest vision, all negatives. But within that first hypothesis that he describes this, he says, it follows the Logos. All the negatives follow the Logos. What? Yes. Wait a minute, do that again. Profound questions open the mind to itself to discover its own rationality. To, if it can go the next step and see not only is it rational, but it is intelligible. Now we're, now we're on a higher functioning level. But the source of that intelligibility is the Logos. It's the highest intellectual principle that is the source of all the other principles. It has a life of its own. And from that logos comes the brilliant light of being. Divine luminosity. Because in that divine luminosity, you can smile at yourself seeing yourself as the self-intelligible ah, Logos. It seems to be the place where theology and philosophy come together. Yes. And, you know, men and women, when they finally can get into a meaningful relation with, the, with their other, 
their lover or beloved. What they're struggling for is a way of approaching their, each of their own intelligibility and finding a commonness within which they can grow together and mature. That's seeking the logos in relationships as it unfolds into a higher vision of understanding and rationality and intelligibility. That's a logos. Or put it in theological terms. When God created the universe, he had an idea in his mind. Logos. That's why the Gospel of John starts in the beginning was the Logos. Now, most translations call it in the beginning was the Word. That's, you know, hey, uh-oh, come on, Word. Logos. And then John goes on to say, and the Logos was God. Yes, that's right, it's divine. That's why we can reason with one another and walk away and smile and say goodbye and hello and share one another what we think and believe and understand and know. Yeah, yeah, that's our game. So it's from the Greek word logos that we derive our, our word logic. Yes. But you're referring to Logos as, as the ultimate of uh, human intelligence. And uh, are you suggesting that what we call logic is the ultimate of human intelligence? No, 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 no. Logic is just Aristotle's way of trying to nail it down. Logic is a shadow of the Logos. You can see the Logos better through great poetry or great philosophy or seeing. See, when you drop dead, the thing you most want to know is, hey, was it all worth it? What I went through in my life, did I get anything for this experience? But does life itself have any value? Is there any intelligibility to, to life itself? So as you drop dead, you carry this thought, and you have your mind open, and you want to experience what you're going to experience with that mind openness and that question, and you're going to see. That's your gift when you drop dead. Need a good question. That's a damn good question. Well, Pierre Grimes, one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're back together. <laughs> what a joy it is to be with you, my friend. We've enjoyed one another and. Look forward to further talks. Anytime you have one you want to set up, please do so. I'm very happy to reconnect with you, Pierre. I hope that uh, you continue to live many, many, many more years so we can keep the conversation going. Sure. Yes. Yes. Let us do so. My pleasure. Thank you so much for being with me today, Pierre. 
My full appreciation goes with it and with you, and for all people who are interested in knowing themselves. Get on board! <laughs> There's plenty of room! That's a lot of fun! There's nothing better than knowing yourself, yes? And for those of you listening or watching, thank you. Thank you for being with us. Yes. Thank you indeed for being and sharing with us because it's a lot of fun. The highest fun. It's the noblest game. Join us. We'd love to have you.